It's good to be back uh, two weeks in a row, yeah, and uh, Pastor Mike will be back and the family will be back, so I want to thank, uh, thank you for the opportunity to come. Before I read the text, I want to lead up to the text by asking you to think for a, a, a moment about detours. You know what a detour is, you're riding down the road, you're you're here, you want to go there, you get to this sign that says, well, you can't go this way, you've got to go this other way because this road's closed or blocked or there's a wreck. Uh, last time I drove to the coast, there was a house fire and 26 was closed. And so we had to go around and we were much delayed. Um, for believers, the path from where we are to the path to glory life with God in heaven, often has detours. We would like to think it's going to be as straight as the center aisle. But that's not the way it usually works. Certainly in this passage, Jacob, uh, Genesis has been about Joseph for many chapters now, but now I think in this passage, Jacob comes back to the, to the center of the focus. There was... There was a detour, a big detour. When I was here, I preached a sermon from Ezekiel 1, and I said Ezekiel was raised up in Jerusalem to be a priest, but got deported five, six, seven hundred miles away, and his life had not gone like he thought it would. A detour. My hunch is that there have been detours in most of your lives. Maybe you're on one today. I don't know. Maybe there'll be one sometime in the future, but I know life doesn't typically go from here to glory in a straight line. So I've entitled the sermon, God's People Preserved in the Midst of a Detour. So let's pray and have a look at it, okay? Father, thank you for your word, so relevant to our broken lives, to our lives that have so many detours in them, that go from here to a place we hadn't thought, but we eventually get to where we desired. Help us to know how to deal with detours. Help us to know what this passage teaches us about them and how we can glorify you in the midst of them. Lord, use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 46, I want to begin reading at verse 1. And as you're turning to Genesis 46, let me remind you that we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. This is not our reflections about God, but God's revelation to us. And um, so we take it up in verse 1. I want to read verses 1 to 7, and then from 26 to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's Word. So Israel, that is Jacob, Jacob's called Israel. So Israel, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I'm God, 
the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then in verses 8 through 25, they list out all of the people that went down into Egypt from the promised land with Jacob. And then we take it up in verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All of the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead to Joseph to show him the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You will say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Amen. The grass withers and the flowers will fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. First point I want to talk about is the situation they faced in this interesting text. And the first part of the situation is family disunity. Family disunity. Many of you will know the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. A caravan is going down to Egypt, and they hated their brother. They had been told that they would bow down to their brother and serve their brother, which has happened in actuality just a chapter or two before this. But they hated their brother, and so they sold him. And he was taken down to Egypt. Slavery by the hand of his brothers. Wasn't a lot of unity in that. And then Jacob. Jacob had swindled, bought the birthright of his older brother Esau. He had had to flee to his uncle Laban, where he is ill treated 
in order to whip him into shape, I think. So family disunity, the loads, loads of family disunity leading up to this point in this very tender scene where it says that Joseph presented himself to his father and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Secondly, there's hunger. The reason they're going to Egypt is there's going to be a seven-year famine there in year two. Joseph was in Egypt. You know, he rose to fame. He became the right hand to the Pharaoh. He interpreted a dream for the Pharaoh. He, he said, we're going to have full years and then lean years. Let's store up the grain. We'll sell it back to the people and you'll make a killing, Pharaoh. And that's what happened. And he is elevated to a top spot. God had brought him there so that he could save the covenant family. So that he could save the people of God. They are hungry. And Jacob had said to his sons that remained with him in Canaan, well, go on down to Egypt and buy us a little food that we can eat before we die. The shadow of death hangs over the promised land. But the Egyptians have got a lot. Now, that's a theme in the scriptures, right? I mean, the pagans often have plenty, and the people of God are in trouble. And, And the people of God sometimes look at that situation and think, Hey, God, what gives? Some of us have said that. Some of us have wondered about that. Asaph in Psalm 73 wondered about this. He said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Yeah. Wicked people prosper. God's people don't. What's going on, God? I bet some of you felt that. I bet some of you said that. Why do the ungodly seem to prosper more than the people of God? I want to give you two answers right quick, okay? Very simple, but I think profound. The first one is this. God's plan is not to give you and me heaven on earth. He's going to give us heaven in heaven. Much of our frustration is caused by we want heaven on earth, right? But heaven comes in heaven. Oh, that seems really simple, Alan. Why did you say that? Because we forget it. We forget it. And the second reason that sometimes God's people don't seem to prosper when pagans do is that God has plans and purposes that you and I cannot see. God has plans and purposes that you and I cannot see. That led directly to Jesus' death on the cross, right? Because Peter said, well, God, no, Jesus, no, we're not going to let you go to the cross. We'll take up swords. We'll whip up on the Romans. No, you won't. I've got to die for you. And Peter and the rest, they didn't get it because God had plans and purposes they could not see. That's true in your life, your life, your life, my life, everybody's life. God's got plans and purposes going you can't see right now. So, sorry. Here's, here's, here's what's going on. The family of God, the people of the promises are in danger of starving to death and ceasing to exist 
because of this great dichotomy between the poverty of the people of God and the plenty of the pagans. And the third thing about their situation is homelessness. They're about to leave Canaan and go into Egypt, and they will be what we call refugees. The people of God is refugees? Well, Peter will say, strangers and aliens in the earth. So it's not that novel a thing, right? This is the situation they faced. Secondly, look at the journey they took. The journey they take is obviously away from the land of promise. And that just creates huge questions. Okay, God, you said to Abram, leave Ur the Chaldees, follow me. I'll take you to a wonderful land and you can have it and you'll have a lot of the offspring of your, your, your offspring will be more than the stars of the sky. But even Abraham, if you go back and check the record, Abraham, because of a famine, had to go down to Egypt to get food. <laughs> it's crazy. It's kind of like, oh, we've read this before, haven't we? But God, did you mean it when you made the promises? God, do you love us? God, are you sending us away from you? Lord, you are the God of, of the land. And you're sending us away. You're sending us to Egypt. It's not the land of promise. They're going to become today what we call, not refugees, you could call them displaced people. Abraham had been there. And now Jacob and all the family go there. You remember what happened to Abraham when he got down to Egypt. He said about Sarah, his wife, uh, she's my sister. And Pharaoh kind of got on to what was going on, and Pharaoh came to Abraham and said, why'd you do this to us? I mean, we could have gotten in, in, in deep weeds with your God for this. And it would have been a really bad family mem- memory. I mean, they, they would know the story of Abraham going down and, the, and, and the, the, the situation with Sarah and how humiliated Abraham had been by what had happened. That story would have been passed down. And so, so here's Jacob heading off down to where his grandfather had kind of gotten in the ditch, you might say. This is not a good thing. Isaac, interesting, so Abraham had been to to Egypt. Isaac, in chapter 26, is specifically told not to go down to Egypt. Verse 26, chapter 26, verse 1, there was a famine in the land. They had famines periodically, right? Right? Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. And there's a lot of interesting things I could draw out of that, but won't take the time to do it, because in Abraham he said, Go down to Egypt. Isaac, don't go to Egypt. Jacob, go to Egypt. Huh. Huh. So no doubt Jacob's kind of afraid because his father was told, don't go down there. And now he's told to go. But this displacement of the people of God is going to set up three really important things. Very, very, very important things. The first thing it sets up is the exodus. There can't be an exodus from Egypt unless the people go to Egypt. So God's out for His glory, right? So He sends His, He's going to take His people. He's going to take these 70 people to Egypt. They're going to come out 600,000 men plus the women and children, maybe 2.5 million people. God's going to get glory doing that, right? 
Big glory. And he's going to get glory not only by saving his people, but judging his enemies. You find in the scriptures that the salvation of the people of God and the judgment of the enemies of God are two sides of, one, of the same coin. That when God's people are saved, God's enemies are judged. You find it all through the scriptures. You find it on the cross. You find it in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 where Jesus comes back on a white stallion with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth and makes war against the devil. Same thing in Exodus when they come out. This sets up the Exodus. It sets up the Exodus. And that's really important in the scriptures. It sets up the calling of his son out of Egypt. The passage was read from Matthew 2, that, that the Magi had, had, had come and they had worshipped Jesus. And, and, and Herod wanted said, quote, said he wanted to worship Jesus, but he didn't want to worship Jesus. He really wanted to kill Jesus. And so Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Israel as a nation had been called the son of God in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, quote, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel in Hosea 11, 1 is referred to as the son of God. And so this is is, um, setting up... It's not going to be possible unless they get down to Egypt to call the Son, the people of God, out of Egypt. And later, interestingly, in Matthew 2, we read about Jesus goes down to Egypt because of the danger of death, just like here, so that God can call the Son out of Egypt. This has to set that up. Third thing that's set up here is the wilderness wandering. They come out of Egypt and they wander through the wilderness. And, and that's an analog to the Christian life. Some of you wonder, why does life on earth today seem like a wilderness? <laughs> because it is compared to heaven. That's right. What I say earlier? Heaven in heaven, not heaven on earth. And, and when, when um, oh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress begins, as I wandered through the wilderness of this world. Yeah, yeah. It sets up the wilderness wandering, the testing of the people of God. I mean, and, and I won't go into that, but, you know, they tested God. They, they cried out for water. They cried out for, for meat. They, cried. they were tested, and, and the scriptures say they failed their test. So the situation they faced, and, and then um, this, um, this uh, uh, going down to Egypt... Now, thirdly, the sacrifices they offered. Look at, look at the text again in verse 1. So Israel, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, Beersheba was a familiar place to them. Abraham had lived at Beersheba for a while. It's the southern edge of the promised land. When they would talk about the promised land, they would say, from Dan... To Beersheba, from north to south. When you read in your Bibles, uh, from Dan to Beersheba, they search from Dan to Beersheba. It means they search from north to south. They search the whole kit and caboodle, right? So it's the southern edge of the promised land. So this is the exit point. This is the exit point. It's a crucial time. It's a big transition time. 
So they're, they're going to leave the promised land and they get to the edge. They get to the edge. And they offer sacrifices at Beersheba. Abraham, chapter 21, verse 33, had called upon the name of the Lord at Beersheba. Abraham had lived at Beersheba in chapter 22 after he's, uh, the story with Isaac. Um, and, and he lived there after Abraham lived there after he had received renewed promises. The Lord had appeared to Isaac in chapter 26 there at Beersheba. And, and Isaac had worshipped there. Let me just read that passage for you really quickly. I mean, you, 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 you know, it, I hate to tell you, it takes a little study and thinking and referring back and forth to really understand what's going on in a particular uh, part of the Bible. Um, and, and here's what we get. This is Isaac. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Perhaps, perhaps Jacob in chapter 46 is sacrificing on the same altar that his grandfather Abraham had sacrificed on. We can't be sure, but it's at least possible because it was the same town. So they, they, they worshipped and they, they worship the God of, he worshiped the God of his father Isaac. And that so shows, I think, two things that are really important. The first one is what, what I'll call covenant continuity. Covenant continuity. This is the same God. These are the same promises. This is the same people. This is the same plan. But their own detour. I get it. I get it. It's a detour. It's a big detour. But the covenant promises of the covenant God remain in place. And he, I think, has the faith to believe that. And so he worships God there as he exits. It, so it's the covenant continuity from God's side, covenant commitment from Jacob's side. It's a good thing. And then fourthly, God spoke words. And I want to look at these words. He called Jacob. Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Now that pattern, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. It's the same pattern that Abraham was called in chapter, in chapter 22 that Samuel is called in, in 1 Samuel 3. Samuel, Samuel, here I am, Lord. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. And, and the purpose, I think, is to posture them for obedience. Um, some of you know the, the song, Whom Shall I Sin? Um, I heard your call in the night. It's a direct um, um, reflection on 1 Samuel 3. Uh, I will go, Lord. And, and God is calling them, like, just like Jesus called his disciples, in, in postures for obedience. And, and it's really to show Jacob grace. And let, and let me tell you why. And, and it's easy to, to not see this point. It's, there's always grace when there's a word from God. Um, and this is a word from God. God's calling Jacob. He's calling to him. He's going to say words to him. And, and we take that for granted. We've got Bibles. But they didn't take it for granted. And, and, and because God, when, when God was wanting to uh, demonstrate to his people or explain to his people how serious it was that they should listen to his words, he said, guys, 
to his people. This is the Carter version, okay? So guys, you're worried about famine, but let me tell you what the serious famine is. The serious famine is when there's a famine for hearing the word of God. You can find that in the Old Testament. He said, you think you got problems, but when there's a famine from hearing the words of God, from this point, you know how long it is from this word to Joseph in Exodus 46, how long it goes for, before another word from God comes to the people of God? 400 years. God will next speak to his people when the burning bush is there. And Moses said, well, you know, that, that bush is not burning up. I, something's going on over there. I think I'll go check it out. And God calls him. says, I want you to lead my people out of this place. I want to call my son out of Egypt. I want to bring them through the wilderness. I want to bring them all the way to the promised land. 400 years of silence. Suppose I took your Bible away from you for four years. Just four years. Where would you be? Suppose you went four years without a word from God. If you're a believer, you'd be in deep weeds. If you're not a believer, you might endure that pretty well. I don't know. But we take words from God for granted. They are not to be taken for granted, dear friends. They're not to be taken for granted. God calls Jacob and speaks to Jacob. There's a lot of grace in the fact just that he spoke. But then there's big grace in what he said. Look at the text. I'm God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. When Israel gets to Egypt, we're going to see in just a minute, what will they get? They will live in Goshen. What is Goshen? It's the best place. The cows are the fattest in Goshen. The tastiest. It's the best place. And why are they going to have access to the best place in Egypt? Because of their brother. Right? Joseph's already gone down. Joseph's I mean, I mean, yeah, Joseph's already been sent down. He's always already been elevated to a place of importance. And he's going to work it out that his family will get the best in the land of Egypt. And they will get it because of the character and the worth and the work of their brother that they rejected. What does that sound like? Does it make you think of the gospel? <laughs> because of the character and the worth and the work of another, Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus, you get the best. You get the best, the absolute best. It's a picture of the gospel. Are you trusting Jesus in the midst of the detours that you're facing now? I don't know what detours you're in, but I know you're in them. <laughs> I was a pastor too long to not know that people will go through detours. Are you trusting him in the middle of them? He comforts Jacob. He doesn't just call him. He comforts him because he identifies himself as the covenant God. He doesn't say just, I'm a God. He doesn't even just say, the God. He says, I'm the God of your father. 
And therefore, he's saying to him, I'm your God. And he's saying to him as he leaves the promised land, as he wonders what's going on, he's saying to him, you're on the right path. This detour is the right path for you. And that would have greatly comforted this man. He tells Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to go away from the promised land right now. You know how old Jacob is at this point? He's 130 years old. That's even older than me, right? Guy's old as dirt. 130 years old. Would he be afraid to make this journey at 130 years old? Well, I think so. I think so. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a car to go in. He doesn't have an iPhone with a GPS on it or anything like that. But God tells him, don't be afraid. And I want to draw out the four reasons why he tells him in this passage not to be afraid. The first one is, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to go down there, 70 people, and you're going to come out a huge, great nation. He would made those same promises to Abraham. He made those same promises to Isaac. Now, he had made these same promises to Jacob previously in chapter 35. Now, he renews those problems those promises, rather, in, in, in chapter 46. And God will get the glory for that. And then God says, look, I'm going to make you a great nation, and hey, I'm going to go down there with you. You're not going to go alone. Now, in that day and age, the people of God were struggling in, in paganism, in, in, in religion in that world today. Gods tend to be localized. So if you went to come, one country, they say, well, we've got this God for for the storm, and this God for the sea, and this God for fertility, and this God for food, and these are our gods. You go to the next country, and they've got another set of gods. And of course, Israel had this God that said, I'm the God of gods. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm God everywhere, over every God, in every place, at every time. And this God says, I will go down with you to Egypt. And later, he will whoop up on the, on the, on the, on the Egyptians. He will have those plagues come on those people. He will have finally the Passover where he saves his people and the death angel comes and touches all the people. He says, I'm going with you. I'm going to take care of you. This is the Emmanuel concept. The Emmanuel concept is you will call his name Jesus. I mean Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when God is with you, you're okay. When God is with you, there's blessing. That's what you find in the scriptures. In, in Genesis 1, 2, 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, God with them, great place. In the Bible, the people of God, in the place of God, heaven. What's the big deal about heaven? God's with his people. Here's, here's God saying to Jacob, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. You may be, not be able to handle it, but I can handle it. Thirdly, God promises to bring Jacob up again to the land of promise. Did you see that? I will bring you up again. At the point of leaving the land that had been promised to them as an eternal inheritance, God assured him that his promise would stand and would eventually be fulfilled. Is God slow about his promises? No. He's deliberate. He is deliberate, but he's not slow. 
In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those that were under the law. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent forth His Son. Galatians 4, verse 4. Peter said, no, he's not slow. He's delaying, giving people an opportunity to repent. And God promises Jacob, this is the fourth encouragement, God promises Jacob he will see Joseph before he dies. He said, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So he said, well, I may be 130 now, but I'm not going to die before I see my boy. He'd been longing for his boy, this son, this son of Rachel, for a long time. Thought he was dead, found out he's alive. When he found out he was alive, in chapter 45, he said his heart became numb. He's shocked. He's shocked. The boys come back and say, well, our older brother, the the one we sold, he's still alive. He's kind of the head honcho down in Egypt. Really? His heart became numb. That boy is going to close your eyes when you die. Wasn't a given that would happen. So then, last thing I want to point out in this passage, great passage, isn't it? Wonderful stuff. This, this is, this, God is so good to let us see this stuff. In this last section where they actually uh, go into the land and, and they meet with, with, with Joseph, and I love that tender scene. Uh, he presented himself and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. What an understatement. <laughs> a good while. Uh, my son in Portland, when I see him, he was over last night. I always kiss him on the neck. Um, and I don't think I've got a, much grip on what it's like for that after all the time that had transpired. Friends, spend some time reflecting on, put yourself in that context. You can't, Im- I'd love for somebody to make a, a really good movie about that. That scene alone would be worth going to the movie. But that's not the big thing here. The big thing in here is they're shepherds and and Egyptians hated shepherds. And you think, why in the world is that in the Bible? Well, this is preservation. It is? Yeah, it's preservation by separation. They're going to be separated from the Egyptians. Egyptians are not going to have anything to do with them. Those people are shepherds. They stink. Their animals stink. You say, well, is that good? Well, think of, think of it. If they amalgamate, if they mix with the Egyptians, will there be a unique people of God to bring out? Oh, never thought of it that way. They're the minority group. They are the persecuted. They're the ones everybody talks about. They make the gossip columns in the newspapers. But they're going to be preserved as a distinct people of God. They will be in Egypt, but they will not be of Egypt. So also we must be in the world without being of the world. They will be God's peculiar people, to use a New Testament phrase. And they're called to give God glory by living as His distinct people. So where are you headed? Where are you headed? There's two choices in the Bible. You can head to heaven or you can head to hell. It's only two choices. What's the path of your journey? You going straight or are you on a detour? If you belong to Jesus, you can be sure, like Jacob and Joseph and all of these, 
that you will get to the promised land. And I think you can also be sure you're going to have some detours along the way. It's not going to be a very straight path that will be wandering through the wilderness of this world. Jacob detoured and in fact died. But they brought his bones up. He got back. He got there. I've delayed using this phrase, but it's been obvious, I hope, all along. It takes walking by faith as the people of God to, to, to persevere in the detours of life, does it not? God as I said earlier, always has purposes and goals that we cannot see. So walking by faith, not by sight, is absolutely essential if we're going to be God followers, Jesus followers. That's clearly in this passage. But just be sure of this, okay? Just as, jo- just as Joseph was there to close the eyes of Jacob, so also Jesus will be there when your eyes close brothers and sisters. And someday, Jesus will come back again and he will open them up. That's why he lived the life that you could never live and died the death that your sins deserve. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, forgive us that we get so cranky and get so upset in the middle of the detours. Um, Forgive us our lack of faith. Forgive us our grumbling like Israel grumbled in the wilderness. Forgive us our accusing you of not being a, a God that's true to his word. Forgive us for wanting heaven on earth. Forgive us of our impatience. Forgive us our lack of faith. Lord, um, many of us have loved ones that were believers that have gone on before us. And we look forward to the day when you will open their eyes. When your hand will touch them. And then you'll give them a renewed body and a renewed, remade soul. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will come quickly and make us faithful to the end. Amen.